Well, welcome back. On behalf of Dr. Sugger, I am Dr. Coleman. Welcome to Recommended Daily Dose. Uh, is that an e-cigarette in your pocket? Here? It is not. Okay, you would it's, never do it's that, It's a right? Twizzler, just so you know. A Twizzler. Is that a Twizzler in your pocket, or are you happy to see me? <laughs> we have a special guest today, Dr. Farah Karatman. She is a pulmonologist and professor of medicine at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas, right? Good old Texas? Everything's bigger in Texas. But she, and more importantly, she's a physician scientist and expert on vaping and has done research uh, about its effect on the body. You're listening to Recommended Daily Dose with Drs. Clinton Coleman and Suraj Sugar, the not so average health show with a unique spin on what's making headlines in healthcare. So, welcome to the show, Doc. Thank you for the invitation. This is, this is great, given um, everything uh, going on uh, nationwide. And, you know, Clinton's likes is a numbers guy. Give us a little stats. I just wanted to give the, the, the general audience some statistics because mm-hmm. we hear it on the news. But um, I didn't realize it was such a big deal. So, um, you know, it's more than 3 million high school uh, adolescents and about 10 million adults are actually active users. Uh, and then we get the idea that teens are uh, more likely to use e-cigarettes than, um, than regular cigarettes. Um, we've personally seen some incidences of the lung injury, um, you know, going around. But oh, oh, in the United States, up to date, it's been about over 2,000 cases. Yeah, as of December 10th, 52 deaths. 2,400 as of December 10th and 52 deaths in 26 states and the District of Columbia. So that's the latest stats coming from the CDC. But we have an expert to really kind of dive into this uh, subject matter with us. So how did you get involved in this issue? Is this uh, something that just came organically or...? Well, that's a great question, and I really have to um, give the credit to my patients because I'm a pulmonologist, so practicing at the VA Medical Center in Houston, um, I have a lot of chronic lungers, we call them, patients with chronic obstructive lung disease who have smoked for years and years, and they would come up to me and say, Doc, you know, can I, is, is it safe to vape? And, you know, when I looked into the literature, I realized that while it's been touted as a some safe alternative to cigarette, there's really no lick of data that has um, actively or on, in an unbiased fashion have examined this. And therefore, again, being a physician scientist really helped me to generate, formulate some hypotheses and go after the question using methodology that I was very familiar with, which is basically animal models. So is that because the FDA doesn't require uh manufacturers in general of vaping products to necessarily list all their ingredients, et cetera, and materials, how they're made? Well, that's a that's a question that's above my pay grade. Honestly, I, I, <laughs> I think that the FDA um, has their own uh, ways of going after uh, what can be released or to the public. Um, I mean, if you think about it, what are the 4,000 chemicals that are in cigarette smoke? And it's it's now you you know you can go off the on the street and buy it uh, if you're 21 or over. So I I don't think that that was something that crossed their mind to that effect to, to that extent. Right. But um, but f- uh, by and large, again, because these companies were touting this as being a safe alternative because it has now known chemicals and they can they can make some of these chemicals even. Um, uh, organic per se, um, they it just was probably less scrutinized. I would say less scrutinized. Okay, right. But I think, th- but there's two different issues. One is the 
using it as a transition or a deterrent for you know or a way to stop uh, cigarette smoking. So there was All a right. point in time where that was you know acceptable as physicians to prescribe e cig or not to prescribe it but to recommend e cigarettes as a All way of right. coming off it. And if I'd like to sort of interject and say that sure. we were based on a presumption and something that was perhaps more advocated by the companies um, that are now R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris, the two major uh, cigarette companies, which sort of saw the downtrend of smoking in this country. We're now down at the lowest ever in the past 50 years. We look right. at cigarettes and look at them as cancer sticks. And so they realized that, well, you know, we got to move on to a new market. And so let's just go in and say, well, as a compassionate, you know, uh, uh, industry, uh, we would like to now get the few that we got them hooked on uh, nicotine, let's just get them off of nicotine and give them this new product, which is safe. And fortunately for us and everyone else, that most of these people and that there's data that support that, that never really got off cigarette. In fact, they become dual users. So most adults who take on electronic cigarette, they don't really get the same satisfaction or the same nicotine hit or whatever that that their brain chemical makes them want to use more right. of it. And, and unfortunately, then they become dual users. Now, the other side of the coin is now we are you know, putting really attractive flavorants yes. into it. And now we're getting a very young, very vulnerable, a brain, as you know, that is not fully developed. Plastic, right. on a very strong chemical, nicotine. Now, so a combination of the two, I'd just say it was just a perfect storm right. for, for us to now be facing this. So this is that's a good point because the population that it's probably, you know, more effective and worse, you know, long term is the people who have not been exposed to nicotine at all, right? So the the, the young kids. So that's a whole separate issue than transitioning from cigarettes to e-cigarettes. These are naive, which people. doesn't even work, right? Right. Which basically, right. doesn't work because now you have dual users and people who basically say, yeah, you know, but I still like my cigarettes more, so they'll just put e-cigarettes aside. So. I would just say, you know, that, that there's really no concrete data showing that it really, for everyone that says it, it's effective in getting people, adults, getting off of cigarettes, there's a data showing that they become dual users. So I'd say that there is really not not a strong evidence for advocating vaping um, as a means to get off cigarettes. No, I think it's great you can make that distinction because I know we've spoken to some of our pulmonology colleagues and in the past, uh, even they were, you know, at some level uh, advocating to their patients using e-cigarettes or vaping as a way of getting off cigarettes. So I think the idea of a dual user is something that probably not a lot of people don't necessarily uh, realize is happening. Uh, but besides the fact of not necessarily being effective coming off uh, smoking, I mean, maybe we can dive in a little bit more into this whole idea of e-cigarette vaping uh, associated lung injury, because this is really kind of what's been in the forefront of the news, what we've even seen. Here in the East Coast, I think it's been more or less um, nationwide. Can you give us a little background just for the, the listeners out there, and then we can dive into really, you know, this still comes into uh, our practice. I'm infectious disease, Clinton's nephrologist, but patients will still ask us all the time, um, even as non-pulmonologists, uh, you know, is it, doc, is, it, is it really that dangerous to use this? You know, is it really such right. a big deal? So to answer that, you know, my study is basically really 
focus on uh, animal models. And so I can basically just tell you that what we've found pretty much um, negate uh, the, the pretty much puts an end to the to the um, uh, debate or uh, question. The, yeah, to, to the argument that vaping is safe. I see. It is not because what would happen is that over time. Now, if you take a laboratory animal and expose them to four months of vaping, that is equivalent to them vaping for about 15 to 20 years in human life. Okay, so you know that once you get someone addicted to a nicotine, that they will continue. So what we don't know is that what happens long term in humans. And you can use that as a, use animal models as a fast forward to find out what would what should we expect? And that's, in fact, the paper that was just published, not just, but in October, we published in Journal of Clinical Investigation, basically pointed out and very much came with the conclusion that uh, vaping these agents independent of nicotine, and the agents, what I mean is solvents that is used commonly to give the vapors or those who use e-cigarette as a sense of inhaling a a, a particle, which is what uh, smokers crave. So using these solvents in mice over time disrupts a very normal natural um, uh, biological function in the lung, which is very, which is important to keep the lungs open and healthy right. and to combat against viruses, which we daily expose, get exposed to. So what we came out warning them is that while these mice were exposed to vape and they were running around happy as clams in, our, in their cages, when they got the very, very small dose of influenza virus, we had a very large, significantly important um, number of these mice that succumbed to a very low dose infection, meaning that that their immune system or what what their natural defense against viruses is compromised. Oh, that's fascinating because I mean, so is that uh, something that we should expect to see more cases uh, as the winter uh, progresses with RSV and influenza and parainfluenza? I know uh, maybe you could talk about how we've had a drop, you know, recently of cases um, from a high over the summer and early fall. Should we expect to see more cases? So, so that's a that is an important point that you brought up. That mm-hmm. what um, the early cases of the the clusters of uh, electronic cigarette and vaping associated lung injury, also known as E Valley, um, were initially first. Um, uh, basically were uh, were identified uh, in Michigan and several other northern states um, in early um, July. And then after that, several more cases came in and then CDC got involved. And in a very swift and uh, really amazing manner, they um, identified that these clusters are really mostly associated with um, people who've inhaled uh, not only e-cigarettes, but also THC compounds that have been dissolved in vitamin E acetate. Now, the question which as an epidemiologist they want to answer is that is there an association, and sure enough, most of the uh, lung samples that they had access to 
they could identify using, again, uh, very sensitive uh, assays, they found um, vitamin E acetate within the lung. Now, it's not surprising because these people already told you that they inhaled um, THC compound, which right. are dissolved in vitamin E acetate. What we don't know as research scientists is that is it a causative factor, right? Meaning that that whether vitamin E acetate in and by itself would have caused the lung injury that we're seeing in these subjects, in these in these users, or is the combination of starting with e-cigarettes, moving on to something more potent um, solvent, right. is the combination is basically the the you know the straw that broke the camel's back. So it's like a one-two punch versus all related Correct. to vitamin acetate. Correct. And those questions are something that we are currently trying to address in our laboratory using again a very similar type of a cohort of mice exposed to air only to exposed to PGVG, which is the solvent in e-cigarette, and then switching some of mice from PGVG to vitamin E acetate or continuing with or just exposing them to vitamin E acetate from the beginning. And then we're going to look at the, the um, effect of lung injury or, or lung health, if you will, in these, in these mice. And uh, stay tuned. We haven't really, these experiments are ongoing, but we haven't really uh, come up with an answer yet. Can I, can I ask a silly question? What, because uh-huh. um, I'm thinking of happy mice running around. Are these mice actually running <laughs> around with little e-cigarettes and like on the corner? Or how, how is it set up? Because I guess it's no, hard for people it turns, to... to it tr- turns out that mice are actually a little bit smart, smarter than humans. Oh, so they say no to the they e-cigarettes. Don't, they, don't, they don't pick up these habits um, on their own. And in fact, um, they, in, in the case of cigarette smoke, so what they do is we have them run around in a cage and we have um, five minutes of five seconds of exposure, followed by twenty minutes of air, just the same way a person would inhale a cigarette or inhale a, a vaping compound. And so these mice um, are exposed to the cherry red, you know, the heated part of the cigarette smoke and the heated part of vaping, because as you know, vaping uses the same kind of a heat heating yes. uh, type of a. Uh, aerosolization of the compounds that are inhaled. So we very much mimic what happens in humans with the same amount of exposure followed by air, exposure air, to a point where we actually achieve about the amount of nicotine that a that a active smoker achieves during their uh, smoking inhalation. So it's a very you know, I don't want to get into detail of it, but basically it's a very um, calculated amount of exposure simulation. To simulate what happens wow. to humans. But, you know, just to backtrack uh, about Avali when it first came out, because there were some thoughts that um, it was related to specific products. I know um, there was a company called Dank Vapes that was um, some like counterfeit type of uh, Dank, Dank D-A-N-K. Why would you smoke And then there was another brand, believe it or not, um, uh, TKO and Smart Car. But... Just so, just so we know, this has basically been disproven, right? It's not really product-specific. Not only so... Because so we get patients asking us, are there, you know, are there products that are more safer than others, basically? Not at all. Not at all. There is, there is no uh, real um, uh, proof that right. there was one that's worse than the other. What we do know is that almost over 90% of the samples that were I, I, isolated from patients with um, various... Uh, degrees of lung injury, 
contained um, vitamin E acetate. Now, vitamin E acetate is generally not used in electronic cigarettes, uh, the ones that you just go and buy with different flavoring. Right. That's propylene glycol vegetable glycerin, so that's PGVG, which is what's used commonly in in solvents. And what 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 the point the point is that we don't really know um, what's causing E Valley, but what what is more important is that that even in cases where there's actually no proof that they've ever been exposed to vitamin E acetate or or anything that is um, other than PGBG, which is in electronic cigarette, that they've still developed lung injury. And and those cases are sort of point proof of the fact that we don't really know what's causing it. Now, some of our animal studies are pointing out that recycling of your liquid, the liquid that keeps your lungs open, you know, that the soapy material is called surfactant, the, the recycling of it, which normally happens, you know, every every several hours, the entire uh, liquid in, in the surface area of your lung is recycled, that process is disrupted by PGVG alone. Now, you bring in another solvent on top of it, such as vitamin E acetate, and then I, my guess or my hypothesis is that then all hell breaks loose and you basically are injuring the lungs that are producing these surfactant or these uh, lung liquid. Uh, and that's basically what I think that the evidence is that the lung is actually injured and this type of injury is usually uh, is associated with toxins. So I have, I have a point. Do you, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think, you know, because it usually is, I usually am, but com- common sense would say that anything you inhale or you vaporize or burn is probably not good for the lung. So I, I guess as a pulmonologist, you could speak to that, but it's probably a moot point to to determine what exactly is the, the chemical, because like even in cigarettes, there's thousands of chemicals. Um, you know, the process doesn't even look healthy. So I, I think... So that's a very good point that you raised, and... Uh, what what you can do is you can equate one to the other. So what we right. so in the in the paper that I mentioned that we published in October, we showed that there we are not advocating that cigarette smoke is any healthier. In fact, it isn't. But neither is vaping because, as you mentioned, when you're inhaling things and you're saturating the surface areas of your lung, which is as big as a tennis court with material other than air, you are now disrupting a normal... Right. So you could inhale non-toxic things that can still be detrimental, my opinion. Right. I'm not sure, so. And just, you know, uh, for listeners out there, when we think about a volley, what is a time period between exposure and possible um, clinical manifestation? That is, you know, having symptoms. So it's this can be something where someone can say, well, I vaped a month ago, and now I'm coming in with uh, what I thought was pneumonia, but actually could be a volley. Is there a specific time period of, you know, they usually think about an incubation period, if you will, um, that we should think about as clinicians? Most of of the cases that I'm familiar with, and we've certainly had a few cases at our VA hospital. In fact, I gave a talk at the um, chess conference in in, uh, late October, and there was a room about 400 physicians. You know, these are clinicians who see patients in their practice. 
and I asked them point blank, you know, how many of you have you seen a case of vaping-associated lung injury or pneumonia, and two-thirds of the room raised their hand. So this points out that, A, as a pulmonologist, it's a very common thing to find. Yes. Even as pediatricians, I'm finding that a lot of pediatricians are seeing these things, especially those who deal with mental health. Um, Even as an ID doctor, I see it. it. And the extent of it, in fact, is very different. And so you may see someone who gets a little cough and sniffle and, and, you know, lays it down for a few days and then goes back to it and gets the same and then maybe seeks attention or not. But, but But the important thing is that it's the amount that they use. And there are teenagers who use these um, pods, they call them their 11th finger. And I'm not kidding you, they call it the 11th finger. They go to sleep with it, they wake up with it, and they're continuously exposing themselves to this. Mm. And so that is very different than someone who vapes occasionally or just gets a little puff here and there. And I don't know how, what percent of people do what, but I can tell you that teenagers would be of the former. They would they would go to sleep and wake up. And we're seeing a lot of young people. Most of these 2,000 cases across the nation are of people under age 35. So, it, so there's again, there's a spectrum of it. There's the amount of exposure. It is not quite what we do to mice because we do a very controlled experiment for my, our exposure uh, in, in animals. But in, in the wild, people do all kinds of things. So So that's probably why we see the diversity. And we've certainly seen it here in New Jersey, uh, you know, as an ID doctor, a couple of cases that people perhaps thought might have been pneumonia and actually end up being a volley. I know recently in the news there was even reports of uh, what we call metal lung, I believe. Is that related to vaping as well, where the the materials that hold the uh, actual liquid that's vaporized uh, are heated to such high levels that they found injury um, in the metal coils, I think, that can actually cause... um, uh, uh, injury to lungs that you used to see in industrial metal workers. Have so you heard? the ba- voltage of the battery that is used right. to, you know, to vaporize the material is certainly it's critical. And in fact, there was a workshop at um, NIH that I attended in uh, in uh, November, which basically um, uh, very much uh, went into that kind of a detail. Again, I'm I'm not a chemist and I'm not a uh, you know toxicologist, but there are lots of people are working on this try to understand that but i think that's back to my point i don't think you were meant to the good lord and make things to burn <laughs> and inhale or snort so it's not unusual that you would have some kind of consequence from that so i, I think you know, the issue with this is that there's you know at least with a lot of other uh, drugs and addictions there's some um i'm, I'm gonna adjust a little bit some physical uh manifestations right so when you if you're on meth, your teeth fall out. If you're on crack, you look like a, right. a crackhead. But, you know, <laughs> this, I, I think, you know, there's no downside that kids see to this outside of, you know, now, what, potential what, what lung I'm injury. What I point out is that the, I hope the contribution that we made to the field is that we went in there with a completely unbiased approach, thinking, right. okay, is this good or is this safe? Is this what what is it doing to the lung? And what we discovered, you know, I unraveled really as the, this process was something that 
I actually fundamentally was unaware of it until I dug into the literature. Why is these immune cells in the lungs full of fat? And what we found is that this fat is actually a fat that's generated in the body and that these poor cells are trying to recycle these abnormal material in the lung and they basically become incapacitated. And again, going back to why does it take so long for it to manifest? Well, because it's a time-honored process, just like cigarette smoke. You know, nobody dies of 10, 10 months or 10 weeks of cigarette smoke exposure. They die of it, you know, years into it, decades into it. And it's the same process as, as vaping. And unfortunately, the, the, because, you know, you look at them and they're vaping and they're smiling, they look happy, their lungs are not happy. They just don't know it. Right. So I think... you. You provided so much information. If we could just summarize, I mean, I think I understand that, you know, we know that uh, in general you would support what the CDC is saying. We should be telling, as a clinician is telling our patients, which is essentially don't use any THC containing cigarettes or vaping products. Um, if you are using an alternative cigarettes, you should not go back to smoking, however. You should look at other things like nic- right. Nicorette or whatever. But And even though we think that vitamin E acetate is the at least one of the primary um, culprits here, since we really truly, truly don't know what other, we, know. we truly don't know, essentially there is no um, level of use that anyone could recommend uh, it to be used be in a safe, safe manner. Is that, is that correct? I mean, that's what we should be telling our patients, quite frankly. Absolutely. Yes, I agree with that. Seek mental health if you're addicted to any substance that you, you, you basically it's going to interfere with your health. Yeah, we've talked so much about uh, you know on the show and, and, and elsewhere about uh, mental health and the connection of body and how oftentimes they're kind of disconnected, right? Okay, I'm a physician, uh, not a psychiatrist. I'm going to deal with just the organic uh, medical issues. All that you know, but clearly, um, if there's other psychological uh, uh, concerns or, or reasons for use that have to be addressed at the same time, just both physical and mental as well. If I could add one more thing Please. to the podcast, if um, your audience are listening and, and physicians are listening, if you're a physician, you need to specifically ask your patients whether they are um, if they are smokers or whether vapors. Right. So you need to add that. And if you are a patient and you go seek attention, um, at, a, at a doctor, you need to disclose what you're inhaling. That's a great point. Um, where can patients or listeners get more information? Do you have a website or is there? Um, I don't have a particular website. Um, they can um, certainly Google my name and find a lot of, I've had a lot of interviews. There's a recent um, a German TV uh, news uh, that just came out. Um, had uh, lots of interviews um, both um, on major channels, but also um, a good source to go to is a CDC website. Right, sure. Perfect. Well, we want to thank you so much uh, for taking time out of your extremely busy day, uh, both, uh, mm-hmm. you know, seeing well, patients in the lab, I'm pleasure. sure, uh, you know, doing research, uh, publica- uh, doing publications and educating us as both general listeners out there and even as us as physicians. We appreciate very much um, all the expertise uh, you've provided. No problem, and I appreciate your interest in the work and this important topic. Well, thanks. We really appreciate it. As always, this is Recommended Daily Dose to your co-hosts, Dr. Surat Sagar and Clayton Coleman, coming to you from Holy Name Medical Center in Teaneck, New Jersey. Uh, until next time, please be well. Check out recent episodes and learn more about these two modern medicine men and their podcast. 
at holynameorg recommended daily dose.